I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. Today, we're going to talk about Lebanon's neoliberal experiment, or its extreme libertarian experiment, and how the COVID-19 epidemic has brought some questions about whether the Washington consensus makes sense into relief. I'm joined by Karim Shahayeb, a journalist for Public Source based in Beirut. Uh, good afternoon to you, Karim. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. And Sima Ghadar, a an alumna of the Century Foundation who's now studying Lebanese patronage politics at UCLA. Uh, and it's the extreme early morning uh, in Los Angeles now. Uh, Sima, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning, Fanasi. Karim, start us off by telling us how the Lebanese healthcare system and government have responded to this shock of the COVID-19 epidemic, which comes right on the heels of a uh, an economic depression. Sure. So really, the COVID-19 outbreak could not come at a worse time for Lebanon, especially given that it's been trying to cut as much as possible from its public spending, healthcare included. Uh, Lebanon's public healthcare system has never been uh, the strongest. There has been an extreme over-reliance on the private sector, the largest, the most specialized facilities are all uh, for-profit or private institutions. So uh, when the outbreak sort of came in, uh, there was a lot of pressure on a public on the public sector to respond. And so far, the response uh, primarily from the Rafiq Harir University Hospital in Beirut, um, you know, they've been extremely busy despite being owed, uh, you know, lots of wages and unpaid salaries for a while. And what, what's ended up happening has been, you know, they've been taking the lead on these responses and on COVID-19 testing. There has been some efforts from the private healthcare facilities, but, you know, very, very minimal. Uh, no more than 20 beds per facility um, if they want to open a, a space to welcome in COVID-19 patients. There's been a lot of aid coming in, particularly from UNICEF. The French have sent in some aid as well. Um, but, um, yeah, the situation has been a bit difficult um, for the, the medium to long term. And even though there has not been a, a crazy outbreak like some of the countries you've seen um, you know, around the world, I would say that the current response would be best described as a patchwork response. Um, there's nothing really formidable about it uh, for the long term. Can you give us a sense of scale? I mean, the, the, the storyline seems to be that Lebanon has a healthcare system that is extremely privatized. Uh, and and a response to the COVID-19 epidemic, which still heavily relies on the small and poorly resourced fraction of the healthcare system that is public. What What's the sort of ratio here of, of, of public and, and private resources and, and burden? Right. So, you know, the public hospital does provide, you know, for example, testing, right? So the public hospital, Rafiq Hardy Universal, does provide testing. Um, but, you know, they're extremely limited in their resources. So in the beginning, it was mostly for people that had physical symptoms. Uh, in the beginning, you could get some tests done at private hospitals, but they were they were not for free either. Um, there are some hospitals where people are temporarily staying there right now because there's, um, you know, about, I think, 150 beds at this point um, in Rafiq Hari University Hospital. Um, but no, really, I would say that the vast majority of the burden has been left to uh, the public sector, and particularly the Rafiq Hari University Hospital. Um, and uh, you can see even by the limited scale of, of testing that has taken place, um, you know, Lebanon has been trying to push for about 1,500 tests a day, but it's been fluctuating uh, around 1,000. The other day was just 500. 
uh, even though many medical experts, such as, you know, including the head of the Rafiq Hari University Hospital, said that there actually needs to be more investment from the state to provide, you know, 2,500 tests per day in Lebanon. So the interference from the private sector has been very minimal. Is the state able to coordinate what private hospitals do or private hospitals power unto themselves? The problem is that there is a bit of a, a bad relationship right now between the state and the private hospitals. So the state, you know, Lebanon is going through an economic depression, probably its worst since the Civil War, probably in its worst history, depending on who you talk to. But, you know, there's already a really negative relationship between the government and the private hospitals. The state still owes quite a bit of money to uh, private hospitals um, uh, from, uh, from the, you know, the, the state insurance, uh, which many people are relying on right now. And it's already very minimal, but the state owes money and use to the private hospitals. And the main communication between the two is through the syndicate of uh, private hospital owners. And when they officially announced a you know, formal response to the whole situation, they said that in the interest of of, you know, of, of public health and safety for other patients, particularly cancer patients and other vulnerable, uh, extremely vulnerable patients, um, that they will not allow any private hospital to allocate more than 20 beds per facility if they choose to respond. Uh, and the state has not really interfered so much on that. They've tried to just upscale their facilities um, through uh, political uh, donations from political leaders, through fundraising campaigns on television talk shows, and and even uh, campaigns through SMS texts every day from the Ministry of Health, calling for people to donate money so they can upscale a few hospitals outside of Beirut. Now, Seema, we're we're interested in Lebanon not just because we care about Lebanon, but because of the the, the things it teaches us about how systems work. Uh, so, can you uh, help help our listeners understand? Uh, before we go any further, when when we talk about privatization or private versus public, some listeners might might be thinking in a European or U.S. context where we have state state-run enterprises and then sort of for-profit corporate uh, privatized uh, spaces that are that are run by uh, people with essentially with a profit motive. Uh, in Lebanon, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Can you give us a, a sense of? Uh, of what we're talking about uh, with the sort of overlay of the Zuama and the warlords and the uh, the other entities that that straddle the traditional public-private uh, divide? Yeah, for sure. So basically, social welfare provision, so putting aside infrastructure or roads or any of that stuff, things that mostly have to do with education, um, hospital, education, healthcare provision, um, labor policies, uh, things of the such, have always been sort of public-private in a sense. Uh, So I would be very careful in using the terms private and public to insinuate that public is only state-owned and private is privately owned. Because in between those two, what you have is you have a very blurred lines between state and non-state organizations that actually provide um, social welfare. So non-state organizations that provide social welfare, and that's been the case even way before the civil war, this is not this is not only the result of neoliberal policies or results of decentralization policies or privatization policies of the 80s, which have of course accentuated that. But even since the 50s and 60s, where you had a boom in social spending over social welfare, you still had a kind of state-funded, non-state uh, provision of social welfare. So what you had is you had non-state uh, organizations that span from faith-based organizations to um, to private organizations, so for-profit, um, to religious institutions, to non-governmental institutions, 
um, to certain family network oriented organizations that were providing um, that managed clinics or hospitals or were providing um, schooling, especially at the secondary level schooling. Um, so, the, so what it is is that there's a whole history of what you what most people would would call laissez-faire policies in Lebanon that have made the relationship that, that have made the nature of social welfare to be necessarily always this blurred space between private and public. So, in other words, these not these non-government entities, whether they're corporations or or rich people or charities that are running, let's say, hospitals or clinics, are still drawing a lot of their support from state money, right? So, oh, definitely. Most of them, a lot of these, so a lot of what, what we would call like sectarian organizations or non-state um, sectarian provision organizations, they get massive amounts of subsidies, especially from the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Public Health, which have, the Ministry of Public Health has one of the biggest sort of um, uh, state budget, like uh, sort of uh, percentage of the state budget. Um, so they're allocated subsidies, state subsidies. We're going to come back to this because this is such a this is such a central point to how how privatization works and and, and it really comes into relief during a crisis like COVID nineteen because these are essentially uh, healthcare let's say healthcare organizations that are dependent on government money but they do not want to have the responsibilities that a real public hospital would have in a time of crisis. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk more about this. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Tanasi Kambanis, and I'm joined by Karim Shahayeb in Beirut and Sima Ghadar in Los Angeles. And we're talking about uh, what we can learn about privatization and neoliberal economic policies from Lebanon's uh, struggles with COVID-19 and a great depression. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the sort of uh, type typology of Lebanon's privatized and, and corrupt network of public uh, private healthcare uh, uh, organizations. And so, I want to ask, starting with you, Karim, how much of Lebanon's plight should we blame on international donor politics that have demanded austerity and privatization as, as the condition for Lebanon receiving international aid? I think international aid and the conditions that they set um, before, you know, sending loans or any form of financial support to Lebanon, I think I think you can definitely um, blame that to a certain degree or another. Uh, many of these uh, projects or many of this financial aid um, is, is done so in a way to promote further privatization of services and the downsizing of the state without looking at misallocation of public funds. So they will say that Lebanon needs to open, the Lebanese state in particular needs to open up to the private sector, let the market play a bigger role in the economy, and to downsize the state of, of, of what they often call the bloated 
public sector. If you look at Lebanon's public sector budget, there is quite a bit of unnecessary spending here and there. It's quite, it is quite bloated. However, it's not bloated in the sense that there is a full provision of social services such as healthcare, and it's just done in a very uh, wasteful way, in a very inefficient or impractical way, and it could be done far better. If you look at, for example, the healthcare budget, the social spending component is far less than other things. So you see lots of spending in places like stationary or other administrative things. But in terms of the provision of services, um, it's very minimal. So in the case of healthcare, there was a 7% cut uh, this year, and it went to things like the provision of medicines, uh, the budget towards labs. Uh, you know, these are important elements that should be public services. And the more that the international community applauds these kinds of developments without taking into consideration where these cuts are taking place, it could spell disaster for Lebanon's poor. And we're seeing this right now because Lebanon is desperate for aid uh, to handle um, the pandemic. It's relying on political patronage and donations from former prime ministers, from big businessmen, who, of course, are they're all intertwined in politics one way or another, to just to, to, to set up a few hospitals because the private hospitals are taking a step back and not interested in losing revenue that they would lose if they got in COVID-19 patients. Um, and I think the, the international community really needs to look deeper into this. And of course, this is this is just one aspect of it. Uh, you know, you have other things like some of the deteriorating projects that might create jobs for a few years, but will destroy the environment, will destroy some livelihoods of, of farmers and, and, and other sort of working class people. But uh, for sure, you look at the conditions of this of these international aid programs and, you know, you kind of wonder why they've left some very important uh, components out of the mix in terms of the impact um, on society. Seema, how how do the different um, communities fare in a crisis like this? Like, are Hezbollah's hospitals running excellently while the state-run hospitals are sort of in, limping along in mediocre shape? Uh, are there visible differences in the kinds of services delivered by, say, Amal or uh, even the, the 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 Christian church-based hospitals versus the the strictly public hospitals? I mean, in any system that relies on non-state social provision, you will have an uneven and sometimes inequitable uh, provision of services because what you're doing is that it, those services are necessarily allocated, uh, they're necessarily local. Um, so I think the answer to that is quite clear because you, over the years, we've seen which of these organizations have a better infrastructure. That doesn't mean that the quality of care is always Let's say Hezbollah has an extensive infrastructure, of, especially in the um, public health sector, um, more more so than in any other sector. Um, so I would imagine that, of course, I mean we've seen one of the one of the I would say sort of opportunities for research out of this. Um, I don't want to make an opportunity out of a crisis, but is what you see is you see all of these different um, sectarian parties just sort of roll out what they've got. Um, and you see instantly that Hezbollah all of a sudden just sort of sets up its entire field hospitals. I mean, just sort of it's an entire operation, basically. So you can imagine that not only was it relying on the existing infrastructure, but it could actually build a whole new infrastructure. Of course, that is so that it could prop up legitimacy that it's, flo- that it's lost since October um, and sort of trying to phrase this as sort of um, us facing the invisible enemy, um, to use some of the Trumpish terms that are around me recently. Um, but um, so in that sense, yeah, you do you do see an uneven response precisely because of the nature of how this entire non-state social welfare system is set up. Now, are the, are the rich 
who can access the top flight private facilities in, in central Beirut better off? Or are the people who can access Hezbollah's hospitals the ones who are getting the best care in this uh, in this pandemic? That's an interesting question, actually. I don't know, to be honest. I can't, I don't have a direct answer, but... I, I would, I, I've always yeah. been curious about, I mean, having, you know, I've always looked at, at Lebanon's uh, provision of, of education and healthcare as sort of the most extreme version of libertarian laissez-faire economics, where you can do whatever you want and, and sort of get whatever you can pay for. And if, you know, if, if you accept that premise, I've always wondered, do you actually get a better, uh, a better outcome if you're rich in this situation, or is there a diminishing a point of diminishing returns at which, at which when you have something serious uh, like a terminal illness, or or in this case like a like COVID nineteen, does it suddenly uh, not matter whether you're in a nice glass tower in central Beirut because what you really need is a supply chain uh, and uh, a deep bench of medical professionals and their support staff that can actually deliver quality care. Yeah. Let me actually, in that case, because my my focus of research is on the education sector, so let me try to sort of draw a parallel, a parallel here, although I don't like to do that that much. But so once you, if you're actually receiving um, education at the primary, secondary, or high school, or sort of upper secondary levels in Lebanon, you can actually get um, much better quality of education from some some of the what used to be sort of these uh, um, Christian confessional schools at the time, sort of Catholic schools or Maronite schools. So you'd actually get a very high level of education out of that. Um, but once you start moving into the um, once you start moving into higher education, private institutions definitely hands down would win out even over sectarian sort of over um, over in education institutions that are managed by political parties. And better than um, public education institutions as well. Definitely better than public education. Public education itself is also sort of at, at this point managed by different political parties. Well, I mean, it's like a little cake uh, that they enjoy. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? What can governments do differently and better? Critiques are easy. Providing realistic policy proposals is harder. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and with my colleagues and collaborators here at the Century Foundation, we're trying to answer the hard policy questions with specific, concrete proposals. You can see our ideas and join the conversation on our website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. I'm talking with Sima Haddad in Los Angeles and Karim Shahayeb in Beirut. And we're talking about Lebanon's experience with uh, the COVID-19 crisis and a Great Depression and what that can teach us about experiments in extreme privatization, neoliberal economics, and the Washington consensus. So that's a lot of ground. Karim, you have, have, have written a, a really excellent report that we just published at the Century Foundation that argues uh, that Lebanon has, has, has suffered as the result of being forced, uh, uh, or in some cases, choosing of its own accord, uh, to experiment with really extreme uh, privatization of public goods. Uh, and I want to ask you to, to, to muse for us a little bit about what... Um, who you blame and what you think the remedy is uh, for this kind of wild west, uh, where it's it's every every person for themselves and every institution for themselves uh, in in spheres that really should be uh, organized by the state for the common good. 
I think you look at the source of this kind of problem, and I think it goes back to Lebanon's inception. You know, it's it, 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 its inception was based on sort of a gentleman's agreement, right, of, of different confessional backgrounds, and they all had different strong political economic states, stakes, if you want to just water it down a little bit. And ever since, Lebanon has been a, you know, a center for for banking at one point, not anymore, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, banking secrecy laws are still there. Um, and the idea is that it was never a country that sort of went the traditional way uh, of, of, of breaking to neoliberal kind of politics by having, let's say, a strong welfare state and suddenly, you know, uh, breaking it apart. You know, as, as, as Seema said, you know, strong political patronage networks, which include the provision of social services, you know, have run amok for, for decades upon decades. It's, it's part of the Lebanese um, economic chain or Lebanese market, uh, for lack of a better term. And I think the problem is that you would think that in a libertarian system, you have a very small government, which would basically just, you know, do paperwork to make sure that the private businesses keep working with as many incentives as possible. But what we've seen is that public institutions, depending on which political party has them, has also been used sort of as as, as a business venture of their own. At the same time, um, you know, so what I think really the big issue is, is, is it's kind of looking at what Lebanon was sort of designed to be as a state. And it always had this idea of being very friendly to the banks, very friendly to private enterprise from the start. Um, and I think it also goes, you know, goes to, so I think more social, social affairs or social politics where, or sociopolitics rather, where, you know, People sort of don't necessarily have the strong relationship with the state as as taxpayers or as citizens. It's more about local communal elements. So it could be to uh, certain large families and clans. It could be to particular warlords or business magnates. And of course, they come in different shapes uh, and forms. You know, from something as Bullah's welfare service, something a bit more you know ad hoc, sort of like the Wali Jamblat, the Druze leaders, um, uh, social services as well. The, the fact that I think that we've maintained these kinds of power structures outside of government in Lebanon, and I think the big issue is their legitimization from the international community, uh, because they've really maintained a, a strong foothold in the country. It's really, uh, it's really of, a, you know, of, of, of the roots of, of, of how Lebanon functions, more so than just about a few bad apples in power or a few bad laws. And this is what makes Lebanon, I think, a worrying case uh, going forward. I mean, there's, there are obvious distinctions that make Lebanon different from almost any other place that has uh, experimented with neoliberal economics. Uh, but, I, but I think we can sometimes overstate the differences uh, and, and miss the opportunity to learn some lessons that apply elsewhere. Uh, one of those that, that seems clear from, from what both of you are saying is that uh, when you let the state wither and you allow basic state functions to be held by non-state entities that are corrupt and powerful, uh, you end up with a very, uh, with a hybrid system ultimately where public funds are being used by these non-public entities. And in a crisis, it always breaks. In a crisis, it doesn't function for the public good. It will function for uh, the for the interests of the of the holder of that system, whether it's a organization of private hospitals or a private militia or a sectarian school system or or you name it, uh, so you know I don't think 
anyone's trying to reduce the equation to something simply about the Washington consensus or to say that what happened in Lebanon is uh, the result purely of decisions made by the IMF. But that uh, the approach of the international donor community, I think, is uh, is one of the instrumental factors, and it certainly legitimizes uh, this arrangement. Um, and and you know, it's it's hard really not to hear echoes of uh, of these crazy balkanized Lebanese warlord healthcare systems uh, in things like the you know Columbia Healthcare Network in the American Southeast, where a uh, uh, you know wealthy hospital executive who then becomes a, a member, a, a senator, uh, and and sets healthcare policy that's not in the interest of, of, of American citizens. It's hard not to see those kinds of echoes, uh, again, without, without setting up any kind of simplistic uh, equivalency. Seema, when you look at this stew of uh, dysfunction, uh, what, uh, <laughs> uh, what sort of points does it make you want to make about uh, neoliberal economic policies or or austerity uh, aid? Mm. Um, just to add also to um, your point and Karim's point, I don't think it's healthy to think that there is something inherently dysfunctional about Lebanon just because, let's say, the founding of the country was done in such and such way. But rather, it is sort of the gentleman's agreement, what we call sort of the national pact. And today, like you call Lebanon a power sharing system or like in a more complicated uh, language um, and jargon, you would call it a consociational system, uh, which is based on sort of like quota based governance. Um, but that in itself, what it, it's, it's not the problem. There's many countries that actually have these kinds of systems and they function pretty well. I mean, Switzerland is an example. You had Netherlands previously, Belgium also previously. Um, but the issue in Lebanon is that what happens is that the relationship, the the way that you do policy um, becomes always about settlements among these different sort of ruling political elites that themselves have interests in these non-state uh, service provision organizations. So basically, they're just doing policy for their own private interests. Uh, that's just to point that out. But in terms of the neoliberal policies, and that also goes to both of your points, not only is it a misallocation of public funds, which is based on sort of this, let's cut the cake the way that we depend, like everybody gets their own piece, sort of uh, have this institutionalized habit of just... Um, like making deals, making like closed door bargaining, which is basically sort of um, a trend at this point in Lebanon, um, is when we talk about weak state capacity, any neoliberal reforms, whether they're here, there's uh, multiple countries in Latin America, and um, you have Ghana, you have Tanzania, you have Brazil, you have all these countries that already have neoliberal policies. They have huge sectors of non-state uh, social provision organizations of different kinds, of course, very different than those in Lebanon. Um, but those that have been successful is once neoliberal reforms throw around catchwords like privatization or decentralization, you need to be very careful to understand what is the relationship between these non-state welfare provision organizations where they NGOs, international organizations, sectarian organizations, or faith-based or family-based organizations. Across that entire spectrum, they need to understand what is the relationship of state institutions, not only in terms of social spending or, or expenditure, 
but their relationship, their regulatory and their administrative relationship to all of these different provision organizations. Because what, what we've seen is that once you have a stronger state capacity, and by that, that's the administrative capacity of the state to regulate at least, or to monitor and to implement accountability measures onto these non-state social welfare organizations that would make it more even or more equitable or a little bit sort of more in terms of who they provide these services to. Of course, they're never going to be universal because it's not. This is not an entirely public-based sort of. It's it's not a social democratic universal uh, welfare state, and that's never going to be the case. And we need to understand that there's a history of the state to take into account here. But once they put those in, like decentralization in Lebanon, we're seeing that we see that decentralization is about little um, sort of pockets of party enclaves managing their own region. Now, that is a, is a very huge issue, because if you want to manage decentralization, although that could be like, oh, this, well, I could provide more quality care because it's more localized and I could make it even more accountable because it's more localized. But then the local becomes something that perpetuates the political deal making and bargaining precisely because of what the what the decentralized aspect of the system is. Um, so I think all of these should be taken. Like there's, it's, it's, I know there's a lot of crisscrossing here, but yeah, yeah and, I think you get the point. And, and, and what's, you know, one of the things that's damning about this is from a, from an individual human perspective, if you're, God forbid, sick today in Lebanon, uh, you still want the best possible healthcare. So even if you disagree with the approach, uh, you will yeah. go to the private hospital or the sectarian clinic, uh, the, the the best one you can access and afford, even if that uh, in the long run is further vitiating uh, the system's ability to serve the greatest yeah. greatest number of people well. Uh, yeah, and usually you don't have an alternative. Like it's either this network of mediating agents that you have that are available to you or it's nothing. So it's not like you can go for better quality care. Kareem, you have any uh, last words? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with 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 a crucial component of, of what Sima was talking about when it comes to privatization. Is that you know, you know, let's assume that you know there would be further privatizations taking place. It's also the accountability and legal oversight of the Lebanese state in terms of making sure. You know, to what extent these practices aren't damaging uh, and these practices are truly beneficial for the economy. And as we've seen with many particular development projects related to the environment, they have not really done their job and, and, and that kind of regard. And ironically, this also goes into the judiciary in Lebanon, which is not necessarily independent from the state. On the contrary, it's also part of the power sharing system. Would, so would it, it make just, a difference if donors demanded that kind of oversight or accountability even on a pro forma level as part of, of giving loans? What's interesting is that I think we will find out very soon because a lot of what the IMF recommended as per what they said in a, in a report that came out in October, I think the day of the, the first day of the uprising, just hours before they had a, an audit. But anyway, they did recommend passing um, anti-corruption uh, uh, laws and oversight laws and anti-corruption mechanisms and so on. And today we saw the government vote off the vast majority of them. So a vote against the, the, the majority of them. So we'll see how that impacts anything. Um, and this would be a test to see whether this aspect of, you know, the, the Washington consensus recommendations are, are, are taken as seriously as the ones of, you know, privatizing everything and, and cutting 
cutting state spending for even social services. In a hobbled state like Lebanon, just like in a very wealthy and capable state like the United States, uh, in moments of crisis, people still turn to the government and expect the government to deliver uh, the coordination and the resources and the decision-making and and often the, the care uh, that's a matter of life and death. And sadly, as we've learned uh, in both those cases, uh, the government can can absolutely fail to deliver on those grounds and not really uh, pay major consequences. It, it turns out that uh, governments can make bad decisions and people can avoidably die. Uh, and as long as the government has uh, protected its own viability as as a uh, you know to stay in power, uh, it doesn't actually have to uh, serve its population well. So that's a a cautionary. Uh, a cautionary tale from Lebanon. If you want to, if you want to change or improve a system like that, uh, you can't depend on its own system failure to be the incentive for it to repair itself. And on that note, I think we will uh, end today's podcast. Thank you both for coming on Order from Ashes. We've been talking to Karim Shahayeb and Sima Radar. Uh, thank you both for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tanasi. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you enjoy what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening 